Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. All right, good morning. Our sermon text is Acts chapter 23, so if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 23. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to them, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation." And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him, And ask me to lead this young man to you, since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. 
So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two or three of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to, him, to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. We're working through the book of Acts, and we are getting near the end. We are in the fourth and final section of this book. This is sometimes, this section is sometimes referred to as the passion of the Apostle Paul. That's passion in the old sense of the word, not as we use it today, feelings of enthusiasm for gardening and water skiing and stuff like that. It used to mean suffering. And so this has been described, this account really, these last chapters, is about the final sufferings and trials of this great man, the Apostle Paul. And we are dropping right down into the middle of an extended and developing scene. And so I want to give us a sense of uh, what's going on, a little dose of context here at the beginning. Paul has come one final time to the city of Jerusalem. And he knows he's in for trouble as he gets there. The Holy Spirit has testified to him in every city as he's progressed along the way that bonds and afflictions await you there, Paul. But he's come anyway, because this is what the Lord has made clear to him he is to do. But he's come with a specific purpose and a goal. And that goal is to deliver a large gift of money collected from the Gentile churches that he has planted for the relief of struggling Poor Jews in Judea. That's, the, that's his goal. Paul has been working on this for a long time. This is very important to him, this collection of money. For years he's been organizing it. He's got it together. He's bringing it aboard ship with a whole bunch of companions and, and helpers. And they're delivering it. And he's hoping that God is going to use this gift to further solidify and unify these two different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews have a hard time swallowing the pill of accepting and sharing the church with Gentiles as Gentiles. And so he's hoping that this gift of money is going to help communicate to them 
the sympathy and affection uh, uh, that, that, is, that is real and created by Jesus Christ between them and shared among them, that, that they would be one. Money is powerful. Money can do things. It can do things that are evil, and it can do things that are good. Jesus had actually instructed his disciples to, to a liberal use of money um, to, to buy friends for the kingdom of heaven, use unrighteous wealth to liberally to buy friends and win friends for the kingdom of heaven. This is Paul trying to do this on a really large scale, an inter-ethnic scale. As Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's received warmly, at least by James, who's kind of like the daddy over the church in Jerusalem. But James also warns Paul, you know, you have a really bad reputation around this town, even among a lot of the disciples. People have been going around and saying things about you, Paul. They're saying that you are going around the world trying to persuade Jews to forsake the law of Moses and to stop circumcising their children. Now, this isn't true. Paul was not doing that. But this is what everyone had been led to believe. And so James says, here's what I propose. Here's what you should do. I want you to, I want you to undergo this Jewish ritual of purification along with some other men that are doing it. I want you even to pay their expenses so that everybody, when they hear about this, they're going to they're gonna think, oh, okay, there's nothing to what I've heard. Paul's a good guy. He's with us. He's one of us. It's a good plan. Paul gives it a shot. It doesn't work. It's the moment at the end of this week of purification that Paul hasn't done anything. He's kept his head down, but he goes into the temple, and the moment they see his face in the temple, there's basically a riot. These Jews from Asia, a place where Paul had been ministering, some of his enemies uh, see him there, and they just raise a riot against him. They're, men of Judea, come and join us. We got to get this guy. He's the one we've been telling you about. And so they grab Paul, they lay hands on him, they drag him out of the temple, they shut the doors behind him, and they proceed to basically beat him up right there. And this is when the Roman authority gets involved. And he's going to stay involved from this point on throughout the, a lot of the rest of, well, throughout the rest of this book. As God's deliverance for the Apostle Paul and the, and the bringing about of a fulfillment of a prophecy spoken over Paul at the time of his conversion. Ananias spoke to him the words of Jesus, you are my chosen instrument to testify about me before the Gentiles and before kings. And God is going to bring this about through this experience and this trouble and the involvement of the Roman state. So, this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, hears a report, comes to him, there's a disturbance in the city. There's a riot. All Jerusalem's in an uproar. So he grabs some soldiers and they run down and they find a bunch of angry Jews, a mob of Jews beating up a man. They don't know who this man is or what's going on, but they immediately rush to the center. They grab hold of Paul and they're trying to figure out what's going on with the lay of the land. In the heat of this confusion, they cannot figure it out. So they put Paul in chains assuming, and drag him off to the barracks, assuming he's some really bad dude. <laughs> In fact, they think and suspect that he's probably this like Egyptian rabble-rouser uh, revolutionary that's, been, that's like the leader of 4,000 assassins out in the wilderness. That's, they think they got this big guy off their watch list. So they're dragging Paul up to the barracks. And um, what happens next? Oh, 
So on the way, Paul says to the commander in Greek something, says, excuse me, sir. And the guy's like, wait, you speak Greek? I thought you were this Egyptian dude. And he said, they worked this out. No, I'm, I'm Paul. I'm a Jew. I'm, and I'm from a certain city. And he says, hey, could I speak to the crowd for a second? And the commander says, well, okay, <laughs> maybe this will help. And so from the steps up to the barracks, looking down on this angry crowd, Paul proceeds to speak and give a speech and to share his personal testimony of coming to faith, how he used to be a Pharisee, how he uh, used to be a persecutor of the church, of the way of Jesus, just like they are. But how Jesus met him on the road and saved him of his sins and gave him a mission. And they're listening to him patiently. When he gets to this next part where he says, Jesus warned me that people in Jerusalem are not going to listen to me. And that's, because, that's why he sent me out on the road to the Gentiles. <laughs> and at that word Gentile, they, the mob erupts. They go berserk. That is how sensitive, touchy, and prejudiced they are against this whole idea of involving the Gentiles in the church. And they go berserk, and the commander says, okay, we're out of here. Pulls him into the barracks. He's still, poor, this poor guy still doesn't know what's going on. He, this, all that Paul said was spoken in Aramaic. He doesn't speak this. He doesn't know what, they, what they're mad about, who the, what's going on. So he resorts to the technique that he thinks is going to get to the bottom of it quickest. Torture. He, he ties Paul up to give him a good whipping. And Paul says, gives him another surprise. Excuse me, sir, I'm a Roman citizen. And this, is, this fills him with fear. He, he, he figures out that this is real, this is legit, Paul is a citizen. And now the standard for justice has just gone way up, but his understanding of the situation is no better. What is he going to do? What is he supposed to put in the report about this matter? How is he supposed to resolve it? So he lets Paul go. He's still under protective custody, but he's not like a prisoner. And he decides, here's what we'll do. We will call together the Jewish council and we will put Paul before them. And we'll see if they can, if not work this out, at least give clarity to this situation. So that's where we are. That's where we land right here in chapter 23. Paul finds himself before the Jewish council. I think there's three elements to this chapter. There's first of all the situation that Paul finds himself in, which may be more ordered and controlled than yesterday's events, but it is no less dangerous and menacing for the Apostle Paul. Secondly, there's the comfort that Jesus Christ brings to Paul right in the middle of this experience in this trial. And then thirdly, there's the providential deliverance that God orchestrates for Paul to bring him safely out of Jerusalem and before a succession of Gentile rulers and kings in fulfillment of that prophecy which was spoken over him. So those are the three things. The situation, the comfort, and the deliverance. Well, the situation is that Paul finds himself standing before the Jewish council, the same council that condemned Jesus to death without any guilt or evidence. So this is, a, this is not a good situation for Paul to be in. It's probably more, uh, more dangerous and 
prejudiced and <clears throat> less trustworthy than the Roman governor even realizes. As far as he's concerned, this is just maybe the court of, of jurisdiction. This seems to be some sort of Jewish matter. I can't wrap my head around it. But maybe they can sort it out here in the Jewish court. But what he doesn't realize is that these guys are a bunch of snakes. And they cannot be trusted to be impartial or unbiased or unprejudiced towards Paul at all, especially about Paul. This is the worst place for Paul to be tried. And that will become clear by the end of the, the day. But Paul now stands before them, and it is very interesting to observe how he handles himself under this pressure and in this situation. It's, it's unlike, so Jesus stood before this same group 30 years ago. But Paul handles himself in a very different way than Jesus did. That's very interesting to observe and consider. Jesus was like a lamb who was silent before his shearers. Remember that quote from Isaiah? He didn't have a lot to say. He did not defend himself before these false accusations and before these wicked men. Paul, though, does. And we want to talk about why. Paul is given the floor. He has the opening words. In verse 1, he says, looking intently at the council, that's notable, that he's not like got his head down in shame or anything, and this is probably infuriating to them. He's confident. He looks them in the eye, and he says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. <laughs> that is a bold opening claim. Is Paul saying that he's sinlessly perfect? No, there is no such bird. What he's doing is he's heading off the, the, the charge that's commonly made against him by these men, that he's some kind of unfaithful, traitorous Jew that has rejected the Jewish way of life and the Jewish law and the Jewish God. He is not. He's saying, listen, no, brothers, everything I do, everything I say is sincere, and it is in service of the Lord. I am his man. That is how I live my life. I'm here before you in sincerity as a servant of Yahweh and of his cause. If Paul had more in mind to say at this point in his defense, we don't get to hear it because as soon as these words come out of his mouth, the high priest is enraged and, and orders him to be struck on the mouth. Verse 2. What Paul had just said in their ears, in their minds, was tantamount to blasphemy because they just know he's guilty. <laughs> this shows their prejudice and their animus towards this man and against all that he stands for and against his Messiah. And so he's struck on the mouth. Have you ever been hit in the face? It's a very surprising feeling. An angering experience, at least in, for me, because of just like the shock and the, it's, it's weird to get hit in the face. And, and I think Paul really does respond angrily here. I mean, he's like, pow, ouch. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. How dare you sit in judgment over me? Sit there according to the law, judging according to the law, in a violation of, the, of your own law, order me to be struck. So he's calling him, when he calls him a whitewashed wall, that's biblical language for hypocrite. And he's appealing to Leviticus 19, verse 25, 
which secures the rights of Israelites in, in the law itself to a fair and impartial trial, and it warns judges that they better judge justly and impartially. And so he's saying, how dare you, a seeming upholder of the law, violate your own law and having me struck? Before I've even had a chance to defend myself, you've already rendered judgment on my words. Now, there's a lot of questions about what Paul, whether Paul is uh, right to respond this way. He's certainly right about the violation of the law. The law is clear. The high priest has violated the law. But was Paul right to respond to him and rail against him in this way? Commentators don't agree. John Calvin doesn't agree with me. They just don't, there's a lot of confusion and, and try, a lot of dancing, lots of fancy footwork trying to explain what Paul's doing and what he means here. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think he's angry, and I think he comes to believe that he misspoke and shouldn't have done that. He certainly shocks and offends everybody else around him. They say in verse 4, do you revile God's high priest? Now listen, okay? Authority and honoring of authority is important to God. Being dismissive or railing or reviling authority in Scripture is an especially bad sin. Okay? I'm going to read you one evidence of this from the letter of Peter, the second letter of Peter, chapter 2, verse 10, 9 and 10. Here's what Peter says. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. God knows especially how to reserve those people for judgment. How you doing in your relationship towards authority? Young men, young women, boys and girls, the way some of you speak to your parents is unacceptable. It is very wicked. A lot of us are under the delusion That authority, will respect authority, fine, no problem, as long as authority is worthy of my respect. As long as they show themselves to be right, and it's my job to judge. And listen, there is no perfect authority in this world, except Jesus Christ, who ordained and instituted governing authorities in this world, knowing full well that they're just men who put their pants on one leg at a time. That is to say, sinners who sometimes misjudge things, who get things wrong, who take too hard of a stand over here and too soft of a stand over here, who bounce back and forth between those stands to your vexation and endless failings and weaknesses and flaws. 
And God demands and requires that we honor and respect authority and not revile the governing authorities in our lives. Our parents, our governors, our leaders, our policemen, our teachers, our pastors, our elders. Moms, don't let your kids disregard your authority. This is something I've observed. Moms, stand up taller. Require more of your children. Don't apologize for that. They owe you honor and respect. Dads, where are you in that? It is your job to teach your children and require them clearly to honor and respect their mothers and to teach your wife to have a higher view of herself than she's inclined to have and to expect more and require more of your children herself. Authority is important to the Lord. He made it, knowing it was flawed, so that we would be governed and ruled and learn humility and submissiveness in our lives, which is for our good, both physically and spiritually. Paul seems, in my judgment here, sincerely to affirm that he's done something wrong, or at least ill-considered, and how he has just spoken to this high priest. It says in verse 5, Paul says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Some people think that Paul's speaking sarcastically here, sort of poking fun at the high priest. I just don't buy it. First of all, he quotes God's law. He says, it is written. And this seems to be a clear acknowledgement from Paul that he has done something he shouldn't have done. And if he is acknowledging fault, then I think it also lends credibility to something he had said earlier in his opening statement that he has worked to keep a clear conscience before God till this day. How do you keep a clear conscience before God? Not by being practically perfect in every way, but by keeping short accounts, fessing up, saying, I was wrong, taking it back, assuming responsibility for your sins and failures. That's how you keep a clear conscience before God. There's no other way. That's it. You acknowledge your faults before God and others. And that's what Paul does here. Some of us have a really hard time getting those words out of our mouths. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Hardest words ever to speak. The best words ever to speak. Bear good fruit in your life and in others' lives. Secondly, in, as he's acknowledging his mistake, Paul also pleads a measure of ignorance or unintentionality. He says in verse 5, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. Ignorance is not an excuse for violating of the law in our legal code, nor in God's law. But it is a mitigating circumstance, which adjusts down the consequences. And I think Paul is doing two things. I think he's saying, in, in essence, I think what Paul is saying, excuse me, brothers, you're right. In fact, let me show you how right you are. God's law condemns what I just did. 
Now, would you please excuse me, because I didn't realize, I wasn't thinking through what I did properly, who I was speaking to. Now, there's a lot of questions about how Paul can, can honestly say, I didn't, I didn't know he was the high priest. You get that? You would question that if you're a biblical commentator. How does Paul get away with saying that? Is he being honest? Well, some people say he was blind by this time in his life, and that was his thorn in the flesh, and he struggled with blindness, and he just couldn't see. Some people say Paul was new to town. He hadn't been around in a while, and so he didn't really know who was who in the room. Maybe so. We just can't say for sure. It could also just be that he's saying and recognizing that I did not properly consider under the heat of the moment who I was speaking to. I'm sorry. One way or another, I think Paul really is repenting, at least of having offended everybody in the room by what he said. And that's a, uh, Paul puts a high priority, you may know this from his writings, he puts a high priority on not intentionally or not, necess- not offending people unnecessarily so that he might win them. Well, Paul doesn't wait for any response to this. He's not one to cede the initiative to his opponents. He immediately turns, does something pretty bold to turn things in a really different direction um, and to try to save his bacon. And that's what he looks around the room in verse 6 and he observes that this room is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And he gets an idea for how, what he might, he, he might be able to do to get his enemies fighting with each other rather than ganging up together to, against him. He, be, he cries out, brethren, I'm a Pharisee. I'm with these guys. I'm a son of a Pharisee, so I have a pedigree with, you know, like I have some real standing and clout. I'm not, I'm not Johnny come lately. This runs in my family. I am on trial today for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, what does that do in the room at that moment? What Paul's trying to do is turn this from a all y'all against me scenario to us against them <laughs> to see what that does, see if that turns the tide or changes the narrative. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different parties within the religious leadership of the Jewish nation. They had very different theological commitments, and that's laid out here, I think, in verse 7 um, or verse 8. The Sadducees Luke writes, say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. So they don't believe in the spiritual world or the afterlife or the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul says, I'm with these fellers. And what we're really debating here today is whether the age-old discussion and debate between us, is there a resurrection of the dead and is there a hope of that in our lives? Really clever of Paul. Is it honest? It's not dishonest. Let me put it that way. He does have that hope. In fact, he has it more fully and more truly than anybody in the room. But his hope springs from their hope, from the same source, from the same root in Scripture. He does have a lot more in common with those guys than with the other guys. A lot more. And so Paul uses this strategy to try to turn the tide 
and get the heat off his own back. How did it work? Brilliantly. In verse 7 it says, As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And in verse 9, there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Isn't that brilliant? Like a charm. And things get so intense that the Roman commander has Paul removed back to the barracks because he was worried Paul was about to be torn in pieces in the midst of this debate. And what does all this teach us? Remember I said that Jesus took a very different approach before the same council. He didn't speak in his own defense. Paul does a lot of things, not only speaking in his defense, but using some craft and some strategy. Now, Jesus' example of passive suffering is one example that we're given in Scripture to be taught by about how to respond. That is not the only example we are given in Scripture to guide us and to inform us. In fact, Jesus' example has a lot to do with his unique role as the suffering servant and as the one who offered himself for our sins. Paul is not here to die for your sins. He's here to win people to Christ any way he can, willing to suffer whatever comes his way for it. But he'd like to live to tomorrow, to keep on living and to do his work. Thank you very much. And so here he is, using strategy and maneuvering. What this teaches us is that there is a time and a place to use such stratagems and use our cleverness, and use our arguments to defend our integrity and to avoid death and persecution if we can, or consequences that are not desirable or necessary. We don't have to simply put our head on every chopping block that exists. We can argue back. Now, a couple other things we learn is that we, can't, we shouldn't do this rejecting authority or despising or reviling authority. Okay? That's kind of hard to figure out how to do, how to handle yourself under pressure in a way that's respectful, how to push back in a way that's respectful towards authority. But also, we learn that we're not to lie or be disingenuous, at least not to protect ourselves. You can find some scriptural room and justification for lying under some circumstances to protect the weak and the helpless, like the Hebrew midwives. But Paul, I think, shows a way of acting craftily with integrity. Isn't that interesting? Now, Jesus himself had said to his disciples in Matthew 10, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That's quite the paradox, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But I think Paul demonstrates what that might look like, how to be both innocent, have a good conscience before God and men, but also be shrewd. Wow, point one. 
Let's go on to point two. This will go faster. There's the comfort here that Jesus brings to Paul in the midst of this trial. Paul is ejected out of the room, back to the barracks, uh, still under protective custody. Uh, but, but Jesus comes to him personally in the midst of this scene. He is no less out of trouble just because he's back in the barracks, because just outside the walls, the next verses show, there's a bu- there's, the Jews are seething and they're strategizing about how to, put it, to be done with this guy and bring an end to him. There's 40 assassins making a plot with the council. Paul is a man of unusual courage and tenacity. He is not one to run from a fight or to give up easily. You know this about Paul by now? But Paul is not a man of, of endless faith or courage or heart or infinite amounts of these things. And that's shown to us by the fact that Jesus himself comes to Paul on this very night to steady him and to shore him up. He says in verse 11, on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for you, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This too shall pass. This is not the first time Jesus himself has come to Paul in a moment like this. Back in Corinth in chapter 18, He's under experiencing a lot of the same kinds of trouble from the Jews in Corinth. And at a, at a moment like this, Jesus comes to him and says, carry on, Paul. You're under my protection. There's a lot of people in this city that belong to me who are to be saved. Keep going. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming to Paul. Now, has Jesus come to you and spoken words like this in your life? I hear some reports that in Muslim countries, Jesus has been appearing to people in dreams and visions, leading to their salvation and faith in him. For my part, I'm prepared to believe it. But even for Muslims, this is not the norm. The norm is this. This is Jesus' word. And it is full of promises and reassurances and, and causes for hope and for steadfastness and endurance, all kinds of promises. I'll read you just two as examples. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Hebrews 13.5, quoting the Old Testament. A word from Jesus for you. Here's another one. These things, says Jesus, I have spoken to you, so that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Isn't that awesome? Has Jesus come to steady you? He has through his word. Now sometimes our spirits droop so low. And it's so difficult, we can't, we can't encourage ourselves and we can't even claw out of the Bible the encouragement we need. Have you ever been in that kind of place? And we need to hear people, a voice, a human, an outside voice, speak to us to maintain hope and to have faith and believe. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to realize in this room, in your small group, 
there are brothers and sisters who need to hear a word from Jesus. They're struggling, they're downhearted, they're fearful, they're oppressed, and they need some relief and some hope. And Jesus wants to send you to them as his ambassador in his name with his word. So here's your assignment. I want you today to have sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit, to observe and notice who in your life around you is troubled, oppressed, weary, and needing encouragement. And I want you to take the word that you know, the promises that God has given you, and speak them to, to each other. Okay? Okay? Good. Finally, there's the powerful deliverance that God orchestrates for Paul to bring him safely out of Jerusalem and before rulers and kings and eventually all the way to Rome. That's where we're headed. Paul is taken from the council chamber and remanded to the Roman barracks. For the moment, he's out of harm's way, but then there's this plot of these Jews. There's 40 men who bind themselves with an oath that they're not going to eat or drink until this man is dead, and they conspire with the council, plot against him. They say, you ask for one more hearing with Paul. Say, you want to look more deeply into this matter, and, we'll be, and he'll bring, the commander will bring Paul down, and we'll be all along the way, and we got 40 men who are willing to risk it all to put this man to death. That's how hated he was. Realize this is not a fun, nobody's having fun. And this plot may have succeeded if Paul hadn't had a nephew who God orchestrates things in a way we don't know to overhear and find out about this plot and out of concern for his uncle, come to him in jail and say, here's what I heard. And Paul says, Hey, jailer, could you take this boy to the commander? He has something important to tell him. He's brought to the commander. The commander takes him aside and listens to what he has to say. And he says, thank you for telling me. Don't tell anybody that I know about this. And here's what the commander does. He works to protect this man under his custody and authority, who's a Roman citizen, whose life is his responsibility, and he is not going to take any chances so in the night, he calls two centurions to him. These are men, leaders of 100 soldiers. He says, men, here's what we're doing. Tonight, in the night, I want you with 100 soldiers and 70 horsemen and possibly an additional 100 spearmen. Depends on how you read this, whether those are the same as the soldiers or not. So anywhere between 270 or 470 soldiers are accompanying Paul under in force. On horseback, so Paul's not like a prisoner, you know, in the, in the cowboy movies, drugged behind the horse. He's given a mount of his own, surrounded by overwhelming force of protection from the, from the Roman state. To bring him with a change of venue to a place where he can be afforded a fair trial and protection out in Caesarea on the coast. And they put him up in the Hilton. 
Herod's Praetorium, it specifically mentions, this is where they, this is like Herod's palace. It is on the coast overlooking the sea. Beautiful. (laughs) Isn't it weird that Paul gets fair, that Paul, Paul gets treatment, this kind of treatment from the Roman state. And his enemies are God's people. Sometimes it's like this. It ought not to be. But sometimes it's like this. And here's what I want to say about this for us. Very few of us live our lives on the scale of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) But we all live similar things. We experience similar things on our own scale. All of us get hurt by God's people. We get hurt. Paul here is being really horribly treated by the people of God. His own countrymen who have shared in the same law and history and all of the promises of God and have shared the same temple and the same worship experiences, the same training and teaching, the same hope, and they're completely rejecting him and pursuing him to death. Sometimes it's like this. Maybe in little ways, but it's like this for all of us. We get hurt, and we hurt one another. And it's really tempting to just check out and, and write it all off. And we do this in a number of ways. Sometimes we just, that person is dead to us. Sometimes that church is dead to us. Sometimes the church is dead to us. I'm done with the institutional church. That's not Paul. Paul continues to be vulnerable to these people and to carry them in his heart and to pray for them. He even says in his letter to the Romans, which he's just sent off, you could say, well, it's convenient. (laughs) He got those words in before he had this horrible experience. He had had lots of horrible experiences, okay? But in his letter to the Romans, he says, I could, if I could, I would trade places with all of these brethren of mine. I would allow myself to be damned to hell if they could be saved. He loves them. He doesn't write them off even though they're treating him in this way. Like Jesus, he has this spirit. Like Stephen, the martyr, he has this spirit. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And this should be our heart towards the church, towards our brethren, even when we're being cruelly and unfairly and unjustly treated. God help us to have that kind of heart and forgiving spirit and patience. Lastly, this teaches us that whatever difficult scrape you find yourself in for God, God is entirely in control of that situation. And no harm can come to you except what he intends for your good and his glory. We don't need to be afraid. Paul walked into the danger that he knew was there, that was awaiting him there in Jerusalem. And he he went in there bravely and, and lived through it. 
And we can do that too. We can have courage to undergo difficulties and trials for the sake of Jesus Christ. What are you risking for God? What are you risking for God? You stuck your neck out in any way lately for the hope of the gospel, for the love of a sinner? Whatever trouble comes to you for that is completely under God's control, and he can deliver you from it. So you don't have to be afraid of it. He can strengthen you in the midst of it, just like Jesus came to Paul. Paul's willingness to suffer in Jerusalem and to undergo this trial opened doors for the Apostle Paul that he could never have had opened to him any other way. Do you see that? This brought about the fulfillment of the prophecy upon his life. This was God's way of having him go through this trial with the Jews to bring him before kings so that he could testify, and he takes advantage of it. We'll see that in the coming days. He takes good advantage of it. He's dealing with king of the day. (laughs) He deals with king of the day about his sins and his need for Jesus. Paul would never have had such an amazing opportunity to influence nations and kings if he hadn't been willing to suffer in this way and potentially die. As far as he knew, this could be the end. Also, this opened up to Paul incredible comfort and consolation from the Lord Jesus that he would not have needed or had a different, if he'd walked a different road. You understand me? Have you ever read the Psalms and realized or thought to yourself, I don't even know how to relate to this. There's a lot of, David seems to be in a lot of trouble. I pity that guy. (laughs) You know what? David wrote the Psalms because he was a man willing to get in trouble for God. And because of that, he had spiritual blessings and a heart and an experience and a relationship with the Lord like no other. Doors open, blessings are poured out on people who are willing to stick their neck out a little bit for the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of his kingdom and the power of his gospel and take a little risk for him. So let's have faith to do that and trust that this is where the good stuff starts to happen. This is when the Christian life begins and this is where scripture starts to explode in technicolor for us in meaning and relevance. Like the whole book of Psalms and all the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us from it and change us by it and conform us into your image and help us to take um, courage from the example of the Apostle Paul and his willingness to do your work. And I pray that we would be willing to do the same and that we would not be afraid, but that we would hope for good things from you no matter what trouble we get in for your sake. Help us and teach us to rejoice in our trials so that we can reap a reward and be, and be sharers in your own suffering and commune more closely with you. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.